got a band from Houston, Texas opening up this episode of the podcast. The band is called The Beyonders. This album is called The Beyonders, and this song is Catfight. I call it that because there's an exclamation point at the end of the title. Catfight is on the album. You can find them on Bandcamp. Go to The Beyonders, H-T-X, as in Houston, Texas, .bandcamp.com. Pick up the album. It's five bucks. When you're done listening to this episode of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear, I'm your host, writer, producer, monster movie enthusiast, Derek M. Cook. Welcome to the show. Man, it's already October 6th, man. It's October. It's the most wonderful time of the year. So busy. Got a lot of things happening. I hope it's going well for you so far as well. We'll talk about what's coming up here at Monster Kid Radio in October at the end of the show. After we get done talking about the movie that's on deck this week, we're going to be talking about the movie Cat People from 1952. Val Luton, Jacques Tourneur. I mean, it's a classic. It looks so good. And we're going to talk about it with somebody who's never been on the show before, but I know he's been listening for quite some time. We're going to be talking with Barry J. Harding, the man behind the Monster Minions website at monsterminions.wordpress.com as well as a few other places and we'll talk about that with Barry at the end of our conversation. So we're going to talk about cat people but as is the case when a couple of monster kids start talking other things come up we start talking about different conventions that he's going to different things that he's seen in the monster movie fandom and just a few other things here and there along the way it's a fun chat I hope you guys and gals dig it I know I had a blast chatting with Barry. I want to get him here on the phone, but first, we had an email from Alan Trump. He's a friend of the show. He's been on the show a couple of times in the past, and he and I are talking about having him come back on the show here, I'm hoping in the relatively near future. So he wrote in a comment on last week's episode. The movie that we talked about was Sting of Death. Alan says, Hi Derek, just wanted to let you know I really enjoyed the Sting of Death episode you recently aired. As wacky as it is, I know how excited other fans and I were when that finally appeared on DVD. It was one of those flicks at the time, like The Embalmer or Horrors of Spider Island, that we had seen posters for and read synopses of, but didn't really think we'd get a chance to actually view, because it probably had descended into celluloid purgatory with London After Midnight. I remember having heated discussions with our mutual friend, Kevin Kuhn, and as an aside, Kevin Kuhn's a filmmaker that Alan and I both know and have worked with actually in the past just at different times anyway he was speaking with kevin coon as to whether the monster in sing of death was a man who turned himself into a giant ambulatory jellyfish or just a mad scientist who cultivated a big old portuguese man of war and just wore it on his head like a supervillain and walked around stinging people you couldn't tell from the old plot summaries he continues i did have the privilege of meeting director william Griffey at a sit on a wasteland convention I ran into him in an elevator and told him how great it was finally to see this film. I mentioned, my friends and I always said we couldn't die until we'd seen Sing of Death. So now that we've seen it, we'll have to come up with another last movie to talk about or fulfill our promise and take that final walk with the Grim Reaper. Grafay looked at me for a moment like he thought I was insane. And maybe rightly so. I still haven't seen Voodoo Heartbeat yet, so I still have something to look forward to. Have a great Halloween. Alan, thanks for writing in. Listeners, he wrote to us at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. So if you have anything you want to say to the show, well, that's how you do it. You know, I stumbled across Sting of Death actually in conversation first with Tom Beagler, who's also been on the show, friend of the show. Tom, if you're listening, hi. But he told me about this movie as well as its double feature, Death Curse of Tartu, or its double feature companion, I suppose I should say. And 
man, it's just a blast. It's a lot of fun. You know, we talked a little bit last week about how this is a regional film. It came out of that regional filmmaker movement in the 60s and maybe early 70s. And the thing about some of these regional films, unfortunately, is that they had such a specific region in which they were shot and distributed. They didn't really get out all the time. And Sing of Death, I feel like, Death Coast of Tartu, a lot of William Griffey's films, if not for the advent of the internet, DVD, Blu-ray, fans talking to each other, that sort of thing, we wouldn't know what these movies are. They wouldn't have gotten out of that bubble. So I'm so grateful that we live in the age that we live in now. Although, man, I looked up Voodoo Heartbeat, and uh, that sounds like something I need to see, but it is listed as a potentially lost film. There might be a few copies floating around here and there, but... uh, I need to see it. I want to see it. Look it up, listeners, if you're interested. And Voodoo Heartbeat is a great title. All right, enough of the jibber-jabber. Let's get on to Cat People with Barry J. Harding. I'm going to get him here on the phone right after this. It has been written since the beginning of time that evil supernatural creatures exist in a world of darkness. And it is also said, man can call forth these powers of darkness, the demons of hell. It is the night of the demon. And tonight is the night that Dana Andrews, as a daring scientist, defies the mysterious murderous devil cult in a desperate battle against the demons of hell. Ah, why did you drop the poker? Red hot. Which isn't, you know. Oh, my boy, you're as pale as death. There was something in here. He has been chosen. I've been chosen for what? What do you mean? Today I found all the pages of my desk calendar torn out after October the 22nd. I know why. He died on the 22nd. John, what's the matter? The same thing happened to my desk calendar after the 28th. The frightened girl. The master of witchcraft. You will die, as I said, at 10 o'clock on the 28th of this month. Your time allowed is just three days from now. Skeptical? Don't make up your mind till you see this masterpiece of macabre magic. Because, after all, evil supernatural creatures really do exist. Hey, comic book fans, I'm Joe Stuber, producer and host of Comic Book Central, where each and every week I welcome a legendary talent to the Comic Book Central lair to talk about bringing comic books to life. Greetings, true believers. This is Stan Lee. When do you think the Academy is going to wise up and create a special Oscar category for best cameo? I don't know. They're just asleep on their feet. Maybe your show, maybe this interview will be the turning point. Hi, this is Jamie Alexander, the Asgardian warrior Sif from Thor. I went to Marvel 
They said, hey, sit down. We want to talk to you about this part. So what happened was I had a knife in my purse. I set the purse on the chair and it fell off and the knife fell out. And then they were like, oh, God, you really are Lady Sif. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the one, the only, William Shatner. There's all these rumors out there that you're going to be in the next Star Trek film. Well, I'd like to be in it. You know, I don't want to be a gratuitous character. Like scrubbing me, the uh, windows on the Enterprise or something? There's a guy on the Chris wing. Chris Pine! There's, there's a guy on the wing. <laughs> Chris Pine says there's a guy on the wing. <laughs> Catch the very latest episodes at the website, comicbookcentral.net. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, like it on Facebook, follow it on Twitter, and be sure to join me each and every week for Comic Book Central. This is John Reese davis Hi, everyone. This is Summer Glau. Hi, this is Trisha Helfer, number six from Battlestar Galactica. Hey, this is Dean Kane, Superman from Lois and Clark, and you're listening to Comic Book Central. Where comic books come to life. Excelsior. In the diabolical minds of the madman of Bandorus was created the most incredible plot ever conceived to conquer the world. Why did you bring us here, really? In a matter of hours, we will begin the conquest of the world. Phil Day, undercover agent, trapped in the trap he set for the madman of Mandoras. <laughs> Professor Coleman, American scientist, believed his staggering discovery to be a secret. Up to now, anthropine was the only known antidote. The loss or destruction of the formula for this antidote would mean complete annihilation of the world. But he did not reckon with a group of evil men, men who will permit nothing to stop their rule of the world. What unknown force has been created to conquer the world? And which of the madmen pushed the panic button? Somebody's got to get Vorak. I guess it's up to me, Casey. Having new voices on Monster Kid Radio, and this week we are joined by, and, and he told me to introduce him this way: film enthusiast and and oh, what was it again? Um, enthusiast of the weird. Enthusiast of the weird. Film buff and enthusiast of the weird. Barry Harding uh, from the Monster Minions blog. Welcome to Monster Kid Radio, sir. Derek, no longer Brother D. How you been? <laughs> That's a name I haven't heard in a long, long time. I need to learn how to say that like Alec Guinness does in Star Wars Episode Four. you know, <laughs> when people call me that. <laughs> you know, the last time I had talked to you and met you, of course, was I think you were arm wrestling George Romero at the Horror Hound down in Indy. And that's, what has that been? Man, a few years. Man, it's been a long time. That was a, a podcast ago, and, and I think podcasting years are actually longer than human years, so like cat years, so man, it just feels <laughs> like forever. You know, before we dive into it, I, I want to ask you something here related to the podcast sure. culture. Sure. And what's interesting, we see all these podcasts, genre-related, a real strong community with unusual films, the horror film, sci-fi, uh, perfect films such as what we'll be talking about, Cat People. In some instances, I'm talking about Vince. He had a podcast with 
275 or so episodes, and now they're floating there out there in space. Do you see these podcasts as being potentially collectible items 20 years from now that people will be seeking these out? What are your thoughts on that? Man, you know, it's tough. Um, I, I feel like there's no right way to podcast. You know, there are so many different types of podcasts, and some of them are just – and, and I'm not judging. I mean, you do whatever you want. I, I feel like some are just kind of, you know, they throw them out there and they call it good. I do feel like some of them, especially, you know, the, the quality ones, like Vince's B movie cast. I know that when he passed, unfortunately, you know, rest in peace, sir, uh, a lot of us went online and made sure we downloaded every single one of his episodes because we didn't know what was going to yeah. happen, you know, and. I'll admit, yeah. I haven't been able to force myself to go back and listen to any of these old episodes. In fact, I never finished the last, well, yeah, the last episode that they produced, I never finished because in a weird way, I didn't want it to end. And if I do finish that episode, then it's over. It's done. Yeah, it, it's hard to revisit them. It, the final, well, there was one that Vince and uh, Nick and Mary, I think they found in Vince's archives that. Uh, Mark Malston's uh, commentary right. at the end there that I haven't listened to. And the final one, it's just, it's hard for me to listen to. Right. Uh, I go back to some of the ones for films that I, that I really appreciated, but I, I think I commented on my blog that, you know, I really look at the, what you are doing, other folks looking at these genre films. I really see these as being a, there's a renaissance in these movies that's occurring now. There's no doubt about it. And I really look at that as a documentation of early 21st century pop culture okay. and how we appreciate it. And I, I really think it's an art form and I think it's worth preserving. You know, I counted those Vince's, uh, B movie kids. It really progressed and it got to where I think there was an apex where it was top notch, top form. And then I think it flatlined, not for better or worse, but we got really familiar. And then Vince would mix it up. You know, he'd bring in celebrities or he'd bring in a great mix of people. And, you know, and you're doing the same. It's terrific. But, yeah, I appreciate what you're doing. Thanks, man. I really appreciate that. You yeah. know, it, it means a lot to know that there are people out there listening yeah. and enjoying it. Well, let me ask you this. Did you ever go to Monster Bash? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Not to get on a tangent, but when Ron was doing it, the first few years, he had done it in Ligonier way back. He right. had Sarah Karloff and he had, uh, uh, Bela Lugosi Jr., Bela. And he had, you know, he started out real small and then again, there's the Renaissance and it just exploded. I finally got to meet Vince and Mary at the Monster Bash, which was just terrific. I think, is that where you met him? Or? Yeah, it was the first time I saw him. I mean, we'd been talking for years, you know, on the phone and through podcasts and email, but that was the first time I met him. Yeah, just terrific folks. I missed it last year. I had, I have to go to G-Fest, uh, the Godzilla Fest in Chicago, which is a trip. You, Brother D, you would love it. I got to go. Eric, I got to go. <laughs> that's right up your alley. And But I, what I do is I try and rotate, and I'm definitely going to do, I think Monster Bash is coming out 20 years, so I'll do that next year. But I usually target, believe it or not, maybe four a year, and the Cinema Wasteland show in, uh, just outside of Cleveland, that's this weekend. So I'll be there with some buddies, and that's a real gritty show that really pays homage to the drive-in films, not the classic like Ron's does. But as, as far as cat people goes, I had wanted to do a few of these with Vince, mm -hmm. and I stumbled upon his, his cast. I Googled B-movie one day, 
And then I stumbled upon the, the podcast and boom, you know, I essentially, I don't know if I emailed them or called them. I think I called them on the phone and I said, I have a background. I'm a scientist. I'm interested in how mad scientists are portrayed in film. So we did that initial podcast. I was very nervous talking about Slavic inventor Nikola Tesla and then how that personification is seen in a lot of the Bela Lugosi mad monster movies, the villain in the Fleischer Superman cartoons, et cetera. And then we did Curse of the Demon. And of course, there you have Jacques Tanner mm-hmm. and you've got all these subliminal, all this lights and shadows, et cetera. And I had hoped to do cat people with him and a few of the other, the actual, I wanted to do the Tanner Val Luton films. And I think you did one, didn't you? Yeah, we have talked about I Walked with a Zombie here on the show, but that's the only Val Luton that I've done. Yeah, so I, I found all these notes that I had taken, and I don't analyze films too much, but my gosh, Cat People, there's so much layers of depth in this movie that I'd like to you know talk to you a little bit about them and get your feedback. Certainly, I would love to do that. But Barry, there's something that we do with first-time guests on Monster Kid Radio we got to do first. Shoot. Okay, so we have a game that we play. Let our listeners get to know our new guests. It's called the Classic Five. Now, the classic five is this. I've got a deck of cards, and each one of these cards has a this or that style question. Do you like this movie better than that movie? Who did this movie better? That sort of thing. There's no wrong answer, and it's all about classic monster movies. How do you feel about playing around with the classic five? I love it. Let's do it. All right, let me shuffle the deck here. One of these days, I'm going to print this up and put it online or make it available for sale or something. But for now, we play it on the show. Here we go. Totally random. Card number one. Question number one. What do you prefer better? The mole people or the Morlocks? Morlocks. Morlocks. All right. All right. From Time Machine. Some good stuff there. Card number two. Son of Dracula or Dracula's daughter? Ah, uh, Cheney's pinstripe uh, mustache. It was just, I love that story. I, you know what? I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with Dracula's daughter. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, I, yeah, I, I, I am going to go with that. He's come back. Sandra, look at me. What do you see in my eyes? Death. Do you like jewels, Lily? This is very old and very beautiful. Please don't come any closer. Dr. Golf, growing weaker. All your skill can't help her now. She's under a spell that can be broken only by me. Or death. I am Dracula's daughter. I think it's underrated. I, I think they're, they're both underrated. Yeah. Yeah, last year, I think it was last year for Halloween, they brought that into a local theater. Yeah, I went to go see it on the big screen. It was beautiful. I love the setting there in the bayou, and it's a, the script is dynamic. The only thing is Cheney and Alucard, and the surrounding cast is fantastic. Mm-hmm. But you know that Dracula's daughter, 
really, to me, really holds up. Some of the photography in that movie, it, you know, the main thing, everyone says, oh, Bale is not in it. But I think it's a worthy sequel, that, to be honest. It's fascinating, and I think it's got a lot you can unpack from it if you watch it. So if, yeah. you, if you haven't watched it in a while, listeners, check it out. Dracula's Hunter. Okay, card number three. Okay, this one I think is a given with most monster kids, but favorite Abbott and Costello meet the monster movie? Well, yeah, that's a loaded question. It's obviously Frankenstein because they, they play it up yeah. straight. The one I really like, though, is the Karloff uh, meets Killer. Oh, yeah? I'm going to throw that one as being one of the, the monsters. Remember the ghoulish, goose, pimply, gleeful time you had when Abbott and Costello met Frankenstein? Now they're face to face with the king of the killers in the slap-happiest homicide in the history of mystery. This bellboy will commit suicide tonight and this will be found beside the body. Suicide? I have ways. Bodies? <laughs> the place is loaded with them. And guns. And gals. And gags. And slinky, slithery homicidal suspects. With Abbott and Costello in the middle between the law. And the vengeance of the most ruthless killer of them all. You find the bodies in your room. I put them in the elevator. I really like that one. I think, uh, you know, Karloff is, does a superb job in that film. But it's got to be Frankie. It's just, there's no doubt about it. I don't think I've ever asked anybody that question and had something other than Frankenstein come up. It's the best. It's the first one I saw. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. It was the first Universal Monster movie I ever saw. So, I mean, I've got an attachment to that already. All right, card number four. Favorite big bug monster movie? I think, without a doubt, the best film is Them. However, I have a guilty pleasure. I like the Deadly Mantis. Okay. Which is essentially a rewriting of what Beast Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. It's essentially the same film. But I'm going to go with Deadly Mantis only because as a kid I was fascinated with Crane Mantises. And I still think they're really cool insects, but I'm going to go with that one. That's probably a little bit different. Where are they? Where are the bodies? Easy. In all the kingdom of the living, there is no more deadly or voracious creature than the praying mantis. You think you'll be able to drive it out to sea? I hope so. Every device of military science, every defensive weapon, radar, planes, rockets, marshaled to destroy a thousand tons of beastly fury. A monster leading a trail of carnage, spreading panic across a continent. Give the alert button, Nothing in its path was safe. Not the planes in the sky. Not the ships at sea. Nor the vehicles on the ground. You boys might just as well go back. There aren't any bodies. And then this most dangerous monster that ever lived challenged the security of our city. Ah! 
like that one too. All right, final card, card number five. What classic monster movie icon would you want to see a biopic movie about? Uh, okay. Uh, well, you know, we had the movie with James Well uh, of Gods and Monsters. Yeah. Uh, and the, boy, um, that's that's a good question. I would say the most interesting I think would be probably Shodzak or Marion C. Cooper. Ooh. Uh, both of those guys had adventurous lives. I'd say maybe Cooper because the guy was an adventurer. I think you could do a fascinating story with him. You know, some of those guys that had done some work, you know, in the military, like I think a biopic about this getting a little different, but Christopher Lee, man, but who would play him? You know, that's the problem. You know, if you have someone like Christopher Lee, who's going to play Christopher Lee? Yeah, that would and, be tough. <laughs> yeah, Burton would throw Johnny Depp. No, that is, it's not going to happen, man. That, that just would, that would be disgraceful. <laughs> but yeah, I would pick probably Marion C. Cooper would be my choice. His life was amazing. I can't remember the name of it, but I read a biography of him a few years ago. And as I'm reading it, I'm just thinking, why hasn't this been done as a film? Everything that that man did, not just King Kong, but, you know, the military career, uh, multiple film adventures, obviously, his involvement with Cinerama, all of that would just make a fascinating yeah. film. Yeah. yeah. Has anyone uh, suggested that before on your little quiz? No, no. That This is the first time it's come up, and I, I think you're absolutely right. It needs to be done. Somebody get on that, Hollywood. The thing about Hollywood now, it's, it's all about, and it was like this years ago, but about making money. So now we see a formula, Disney, Pixar. Sure. Disney with the Marvel and it's just the same. And, you know, I like the Marvel films, um, but they get so, it's just the same thing over and over and over. It's like, I saw, uh, that this new movie, what's it called? Sully with Tom Hanks with the Clint Eastwood movie about the mm-hmm. guy that landed the jet in Hudson. It was superb. It was well written. It was interesting. It was engaging. So, you know, I like this true story where you've got good writing. Boom. So I like cat people. Terrific writing. There we go. And there's a good segue because that is the end of the Classic Five. Thanks for playing. Let's talk about Cat People. I mean, just came out on Blu-ray. Across the centuries comes this exciting story of a modern girl cursed by an ancient legend. The legend of the Cat People. Women whose kiss means death. Whose love turns them into vicious, snarling beasts of prey. I've been followed by something that was not human, something that attempted to take my life. I believe that was the cat form of Irena. Why should she wish to harm you? Because I'm in love with her husband. It's shut, Belle. Just a minute ago, it was open. What? Leave us, Irena. Yeah. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah, so I've watched it a couple times. You know, Criterion <laughs> Criterion had a master that they had released on Laserdisc back in the 90s. It's real scarce. It, it was released solo as Laserdisc with a commentary and some supplements. And then it was a, there was a box set that was ridiculously priced, and it's very collectible now. But this new print, they scrubbed everything. They've done a 2K pressing. And I noticed, particularly in the photography, details that I had never seen before, uh, long shots, depth of field, uh, some of the scenes, particularly 
later in the movie there with the in the the uh, Commodore's draft house, the lighting is so dynamic in the depth of field you see all these backdrops, all this dynamic photography up front. But I would highly recommend people grab it. Oh, it, it's beautiful, and there is a lot to enjoy here. I mean, the Luton films, and is it Tornor? Is that how his last name is pronounced? Yeah, Tornor? yeah. And you'll hear, if you, if you dive into some of the books, he was affectionately known as Jack Tornor. And then you'll you'll hear, and I'm I'm no literary person with a strong command of French, but I, I, I'm certain it's Jacques Tornor. The most French I know is, ho, 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 that's about all I got. So, But the way Luton and Tenor would use the shadows, the, the criterion release here really highlights why it's so effective. And I would say even makes it even more effective because it is so crisp and the darks are so dark. And there's one or two shots where they really pump up the light, and those are beautiful as well. And it's just a beautiful picture. I was watching it this morning before we started recording, and it is Gorgeous. I, I can't recommend this one enough. But this is something that you've seen over and over and over again. We started talking before we started recording about your history with these types of movies. Do you remember the first time you saw this one? Yeah. It was either Turner Classics used to run it. I th- I would have to say it was probably the Laserdisc okay. that came out in the 90s. This was not a film that I saw. Back in the day. See, I grew up in Northwest Indiana in Chicago, and we had Creature Features, Channel 9, WGN. You had Creature Features, and then you had the original Sven Gulli in the early 70s, uh, Jerry Bishop, and then later Son of Sven, who everybody knows is Sven Gulli now, Rich Cobbs. They would show these a lot of these movies. And the one that I had seen was, of course, Curse of the Demon, or also called Night of the Demon, that's also a Jacques Tenor movie. That was the movie everyone talks about. Hey, that What's the one with the parchment? If you have that, you're cursed. Right. That one was the one that stuck in my mind. But Cat People, I had I never had seen it. And it wasn't until these films were released to TCM that I really got to dive into the Val Luton films. And the one that was not available for many years was The Ghost Ship, uh, which is really, I think, an underrated one. Of the Tenor Val Luton collaborations, which is your favorite? You know, I, I have an attachment to I Walked with a Zombie because of my zombie past and that sort of thing. Uh, and I love the mm-hmm. music in that. I think that's probably one of the reasons I love that one so much. Of the ones I've seen, I think I'd probably go with I Walked with a Zombie. It just seems to be more iconic to me. But I got to tell yeah. you, after watching Cat People on Criterion's Blue, Ah, this one might be kind of working its way up there. I mean, this got a lot well, to offer. Oh, without a doubt, I I think Zombie is the most poetic. Yeah, and it, it probably has the most ambiance. The photography is just fantastic with the the moving camera and a lot of these well composed shots. Cat People's my personal favorite. I think of the three. The best movie, I think, is Zombie. But the other one, and I watched The Leopard Man yesterday with the uh, William Friedkin, mm-hmm. director of Exorcist and Sorcerer, several films. He just flips about The Leopard Man, and so does apparently Tarantino. Oh, okay. And you, you know Scorsese is a nut about Val Luton films as well. But The Leopard Man, there are some scenes in that movie. It's a linear plot, but he uses these these curious devices where you're introduced to one character 
and then there's a a person kind of like on the outside this uh this young woman you're you're wondering where is this thing going here it's it bifurcates the storyline the leopard mask is another one that's just such a unique movie i would recommend if you watch cat people Mm -hmm. watch the leopard man and of course the sequel which isn't a horror movie it's a wonderful child's fantasy the curse of the cat people the thing I really like about this Criterion print. Of course, you were loaded up with all these supplements. Sure. Watch the supplement. I'm talking to your audience here. Watch the supplement. It's the uh, French Three Aquitaine documentary from seven, 1977. It's right before Tenor passed away, and you really get an understanding of how this, what this guy, what made him tick. And he was really about contrast in films. There's always this just the position between good and evil and boundaries. And you see it reflected time in, time again in, uh, in cat people where you have a scare and then you have a nice thing and then there's another scare. So there's this punctuated timeline. I haven't seen uh, Leopard Man in, in so long. I, I do want to go back and watch that one. But I was going to ask how this one holds up if you were to do like a double feature of this and Curse of the Cat People back to back and see... Uh, how they work out. Because, again, I haven't yeah. seen that one in forever either. <laughs> I need to. Curse of Cat Peaver wasn't Sonora. Didn't correct it. And I, there's a lot written about why he moved on to other things. And it had nothing to do really about Val Luton and Tenora's relationship because they were buddies. Sure. But, you know, the thing about Tenora is he was a, in many ways a lot like Frank Capra and John Ford, Billy Wilder in having a, a go-to crew. He had a mm-hmm. stock crew, right? So he had uh, folks like Nick Musaraka as the director of the cinematographer. And then he, you know, he had people like Mark Robeson, terrific writer. Uh, he had his go-to for music. So he, you know, he had this ensemble cast of certain people that he liked as uh, for his actors, like Alan Napier, so he had this go-to crew that he had developed an art form with. While Tornor didn't do all the Luton films, I think the ones that really stand out the most are the ones that were directed by Tornor. So that's why I was wondering about the comparison of you know, how it holds up. Uh, the Tornor films are, I mean, the, the ones that people think about. When you think of Al Luton, those are the ones you go to. You go to things like Cat People and, and Zombie and some of the other ones. He had such a, a death grasp on on shadow and from what i understand a lot of it was budgetary it wasn't something they set out to do i mean they were told to do more with the panther but they didn't want to so they hit it in shadow and it worked and it just it's, it's gorgeous oh, yeah. work it's gorgeous oh. work so, yeah jacques tenor in that interview talks about essentially use of innuendo you know the subliminal horror and he says billy wilder was a master although he didn't venture into that horror genre but he was the master of his slight innuendo and it's usually a political subtext or it could be, you know, satire, whatever it may be. Uh, Tenor talks about, you know, this is 77 and he's talking about nowadays these movies are so graphic. It's like he calls it disgusting things. There's no, you know, there's no imagination. And, you know, you think about where are films now? I mean, it's just, they're just yeah. grotesque. And occasionally someone hits on one that I like, but in general, I'll go back to these old films uh, so much. I, you know, I, I just prefer that. One thing about Tenor is he's one of these old school guys that, much like a 
like a photographer like Ansel Adams, he's composing a shot in frame. And a lot, these guys didn't, couldn't play around with budgets because they had a deadline. This film was shot in 17 or 18 days, depending who's commenting on it. And they had to be frugal. They were inherently frugal because they didn't have a budget. So they would actually compose uh, shots. And when you've got a cameraman like Nick Musaraka that can really, you know, just look at depth and you know understand how to do it. And man, you see it. You see it in this film. All the choices seem to be very, very deliberate. And it's not like today. Like you said, they had to be very frugal. These days, it's fantastic that anybody can make a movie with practically their cell phone. And if they don't like what they did, they just delete it and redo it. But back, I mean, film was expensive back in the day. And they had so just a limited amount of money. So they had to do everything they possibly could right the first time. Like you said, they compose it in frame. They make everything work. Uh, I, I don't know what rehearsal was like, but I felt like, you know, the actors and the actresses are spot on in this film. They are their characters. There's not, you know, any slips here. I mean, the characters, the actors, the performances are so solid. And then you move the camera work into that. It's a perfect film. I, I'm, you know what? I'm going to take it back. I'm going to put this one as my favorite film of, of the Luton Turner collaborations. I'm going to say it. Yeah. I think it is probably most representative of their collaboration. You know, oddly, there are people that, that don't like these films. Yeah. A few years back, I was at a Godzilla convention, G-Fest, mm-hmm. in Chicago, mm-hmm. and Don Glutt, horror aficionado, film historian, he did the adaptation of Empire Strikes Back. He's been around. He's a Godzilla fan. Sure. And he certainly is a horror historian. He is adamant about the Val Luton films as being hugely overrated. I heard him say it. And basically his argument is nothing really happens. And you can't really take them in context with the, the universal horror films. And in spirit, they're essentially trying to make uh, financially productive, efficient movies it is really why RKO pursued this. But in their own merit, I just think they're poetic, wonderful movies. It's like I don't compare Hammer to Universal. Right. I don't compare the the universal to the loot movies. And it is the same with some of the stuff that came out of MGM, Island of Lost Souls, or was it Paramount? But some of those films are unique in their mm-hmm. own way. Fu Manchu was different. You know, when you look at this film, Cat People, in the very beginning, you know, the prologue, there's a, a little saying there, and it's even as fog continues to lie in the valley, so does ancient sin lie in low places, the depressions and the raw consciousness. And so I, I'm reading that. And it's The Anatomy of Atavism by Dr. Lewis Judd, who's Tom Conway. I don't, you know, what is atavism? So I, I've got a background in biology, so I did look it up. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of getting into the sophistication of a Val Luton, who's really a literal guy, and his guy's helping to write this story. Atavism is a proclivity of going back into an ancestral state. So an example would be, you know, you, you hear this about like uh, in mythology with lycanthropes, but like a modern a biological principle would be vestigial limbs on some pythons. There's a spur that's has a hind girdle. So it's kind of like a vestigial leg. Mm-hmm. So atavism is actually a biological concept that they're writing about in cat people. And of course it's an ancient curse. It's a regression into the cat form that 
you know, is this real or is this, you know, what are we seeing here? So I, I just, I love how the story progressed. I also love that those quotes that they throw up on the screen, they sound like they could come from a science, you know, a scientific text or something, but no, it's just something a character in the movie said, and I love it. I love that they attribute it to this Dr. Judd character who was also in a previous Luton film when he was in the seventh victim, that character. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. to have to, it instantly gives that character an air of authority without beating you over the head with it. And I, I loved that. You know, I, I watched it with my girlfriend and I once showed, um, night of the hunter. That's it, kind of a little bit Lutonish, ish mm-hmm you know, with Charles Lawton's only directional film. And I watched that with her and she kind of, I didn't like that movie at all. And so I showed her cat people. So I kind of knew what to expect. And she's like, that's all right. And I liked some of the photography, but it did nothing for her. And, you know, it's an acquired taste. Some people that want this, want explanation for everything and want big scenes. Of course, the two scenes that everyone talks about, is the butt scene, right? And I think that might be the first time we see that in a movie. The Luton bus. Yep. With the loud noise, the startling image or the noise that probably in its day, I would imagine, freaked out people. Oh, hey, it got me this time and I knew it was coming. But then I, maybe it's because I had the volume up pretty loud. But, you know, I knew it was coming. You see it again, something similar, almost, well, actually almost identical in Curse of the Cat People. There's a scene where Holden is being lectured by the the, the warlock, uh, Niall McGuinness. And there's a scene where like a clock kid screaming, and he's got a clown face on and it just scares the hell out of you. You don't expect it. And it's just that the timing is exquisite in some of these films. The, the set piece everyone really talks about there is the pull scene. I, do you want to comment on that? Oh, it's gorgeous. Yeah. So the scene basically has, Jane Randolph's character, why can't I think of her name? But she's going to take a dip in a pool, and it's kind of like a community center. Mm. And, yeah, Irina is essentially stalking her. She's she's irritated about the sub-romance that Ollie and her are having. So Irina's following her, and then you see the subtle in shadows again. You don't really see, you don't really see, there might be one scene caught where you see a Black Panther but she's stalking her in this pool and the whoever did the sound on that is just dynamic because you hear this echoes even in a mono track. It just sounds fantastic with the depth of sound. And it's all the shadows and sound. That whole scene is just wonderful. And her reaction, you know, Jane Randolph's reaction to what she's hearing and seeing, and it's so genuine. And you know, Irina, you know, Simone Simone, who's fantastic in this lurking around or, or lurking behind in the shadows. I mean, she's wearing a dark clothes as well, isn't she in the scene? So when she gets yeah. into a shadow, she's gone. And yeah. it's, it's gorgeous. I mean, you were commenting earlier, you know, some of the people who don't appreciate Luton. I think John Carpenter also is not a big fan of Luton's work. They are a completely different beast than what Universal was doing in the monster market in the forties. I mean, this is not anything like the Wolfman, any of those. I mean, the story's there, and the story's important, but it feels like there's so much elegance. You mentioned poetry a couple of times. There's a lot of mood here. A scene like that pool sequence, I mean, it's terrifying, but you still can't help but watch it because of the way it's shot and composed. The, in the remake, the Kinski, Natasha Kinski remake came out in the 80s. The director of photography on that film said 
and he's on a commentary on this new disc. He basically says, we, we saw that original scene as virtually perfect. And you see the homage, really the difference is, and that O'Toole, of course, is uh, topless, you know, for contemporary times. But he's like, I couldn't improve upon this scene. And the shot, I won't say scene for scene, but it's very similar. I need to revisit that film. Uh, there's an interesting commentary on the new, the special edition of The Thing. And Carpenter talks a little bit about the remake of Cat People. And what had happened was, that was Universal was going to be their big movie. They were having a lot of problems on set with people like Malcolm McDowell, who was had a history of being kind of a bad boy, but they had a lot of problems with the progression of that movie. So what they did is they pushed the thing out early, the carpenter, the thing. And it was like right at the time ET came out. So, you know, it's just like, you just killed that movie. I never saw the thing in the theaters. It never played anywhere. Oh no. And yeah. I didn't see it. I didn't see it till later, but that's real interesting too. Cause carpenter's talking about some of these inspirations and it's like, you're saying, it's people like Howard Hawks, the original The Thing. It's movies like, you know, the Frank, Frankie, The Mummy. Those are really his inspirations and not Val per se. You know what? We should talk about the, uh, we should talk a little bit about the actors, uh, Simone, Simone, about, uh, the Mank book talks about the scandal with her, uh, but there's some interesting stories, uh, about, about her, uh, on the outside of the film. Do you want to talk about that? Or? Are you talking about the gold key scandal? Yeah, the, the gold key thing. But one of the things that's real notorious about her is she was a lover of the Russian double agent, Dustoff Popov. Okay. I think I got the name right. So this guy is a famous double agent. He was one of the inspirations of Fleming's James Bond. This guy was a, uh aristocrat. Played, uh, he's a gambler, Baccarat. His code name through the British Secret Service was Tricycle. And do you know why they call him the Tricycle? No, I don't. Try, he liked to do it with two women. That's why they called him <laughs> Tricycle. So I guess this guy was a, this guy was like serious partier. Okay. And there's some stories about Simone, Simone partying it up with this guy. And she was like investigated. I, I am certain by the U.S. government about that relationship with that. But it's kind of, there's a lot written on her and it's, it's fascinating. The, uh, the gold key thing she would give, was it a literal gold colored key? I think the media blew it out of proportion, yeah. but you know, there's the main book really gets into it. And so she like, she liked to be entertained by men or yeah. vice versa. But, hey. <laughs> but I, I think she's okay. You know, she does have a, those exotic features. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's a, a superb performance, but I think it's, I like how she was cast. And I think Tenora really pushed for her. I, I may be wrong, but she's made quite a few movies and made French movies, but she, of course she's in Daniel and uh, Daniel Webster, mm -hmm. which is a well-known film. And then she's in the sequel, Curse of the Cat People. But in subsequent interviews later in life, she lived well to her nineties. She talks very favorable about Jacques Teneur. Teneur said that almost all actors that he's ever worked with are spoiled and hammy. And he says they're fake in real life. Uh -huh. And he said five, he says four or five that I've worked with are like the real thing. And one of them was Robert Mitchum, 
you know, he did work with in Out of the Past, one of my favorite film noirs ever. But he's like, you you know what you got you had with Robert Mitchum, right? Oh yeah. So Kent Smith. Yeah, Kent Smith playing Oliver Reed, not the Hammer Films guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's kind of ironic, but Kent Smith is all right in that. I'm not blown away. You know how what I know him from? He plays the DA that's harassing Kolchak, Carl Kolchak in the Night Stalker. He oh, plays DA Payne. Wow. Yeah. And he's like, you better wise up or your tushy's going to be out of this town. He's like, says something like that. <laughs> and that's him late in life. But, you know, he was another RKO guy. He did the Spiral Staircase. But he wasn't a prolific actor. I think he was more known for TV later on. I might be hurt. And I remember seeing him in a couple episodes of Night Gallery. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So later in life. Yeah. I mean, I thought he was okay in this. I mean, I don't think anybody was bad. You know, don't get me wrong. But of all the characters, honestly, he's the one I cared the least about. <laughs> like, well, he's our leading man, and that's nice. But, you know, when you surround yourself with other actors, I love Tom Conway. I mean, I'm a big Tom Conway fan. So to throw him in this, you know, he, he kind of stole the show for me in almost every scene he's in. Oh, oh yeah. I like him in later uh, in the 50s. I love this movie, The Atomic Submarine. Yes. He's in that film. Yes. And I can't, I, he probably plays a scientist. Like It's been a while since I've seen that. And I think Criterion put that on a double bill. But, you know, he's in The Bride of the Gorilla. And yeah, and he was in The She-Creature, which, you know, kind of a low-budget thing, but I like The She-Creature quite oh, a bit. Oh, is huh? he? Yeah. Yeah, that's a Carmen film? Or? Um. Uh, AIP, I believe. I'm not sure Corman. I think it was Edward Kahn who did that one, but. That's one of the Paul Blaze Delmont. Yes, it is. Right? Yeah. 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 I didn't, I'm going to have to go back and check that one out. But, uh, Jane Randolph. Mm-hmm. Who is another, she lived, uh, to a very ripe age, but, you know, we know her. She, uh, was born in Youngstown, Ohio. And we know her really as the insurance adjuster or the claims adjuster in A&C Meet Frankie. You know, that, that's what I know her from yep. as far as horror goes. And then in this movie. Yeah, she she's probably our, our closest to being like a Monster Kid royalty because of Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, which was actually pretty much the end of her career, wasn't it? It was, it was one of the last movies she did, if not the very last. I, I think she retired afterwards. Yeah. Uh, Alan Napier, you know, we all know in the campy 60s Batman show, he was actually really good friends with Val Luton and did the eulogy at its funeral, but I didn't realize the movies that he was in. I'm just, I pulled this here. Uh, I try not to u- utilize IMDb too much, but, but he was in Marnie, Journey to the Center of the Earth, mm-hmm. several Twilight Zones you had mentioned earlier, Premature Burial, but I, I didn't realize he was six foot five and really started out in these RKO films. It's hard not to think, bam, pow, to the Batcave, you know, when you see him, but, I mean, he's got a presence. I guess you'd call it method acting, but he's he responds to when they see this Serbian woman that greets Irena. And the thing about this movie is Kent Smith calls her Urena, Irena, Irena. The, the name is never consistent throughout this film, and I, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what was going on with that. Yeah, listeners, Barry actually sent me a message on Facebook. I'm assuming while you were watching the movie at one point. Is it, is it this name? Is it that name? What is it? What is the name? <laughs> well, I pulled, the, I pulled the script, and it's Irina. Okay. But Kent Smith changes her name umpteen times in this film. 
but there's the scene where the uh, the tall uh, Elizabeth Russell, the cat-looking lady, approaches. This is right after they got married, when Ollie and Irina get married. And she's like, "My sister, you know, my sister, my sister," and she's looking at her. That scene has been interpreted as being an introduction, unprecedented introduction of lesbianism in a film. There's been a lot. There's been a lot of commentary about that, and you know, written, and even Val Luton has acknowledged that that's what it was. And I, I don't see it. Uh, maybe I mean you could read whatever you wanted to that scene. I mm-hmm. I just see her as a comrade with a similar background. I think she is a Catwoman like Irina. I yeah, I don't see it either. Granted, I'm a heterosexual white male, so I, maybe I'm not picking up on something, but I don't see that. I see it more mm-hmm. as, uh, you know, she kind of knows what Irina is or, you know, a, a kinship because of the cat person thing. I, I don't know, but I don't see that. So, yeah, you'll, you'll read into that in some of the, the definitive book on Tanura is The Cinema of Nightfall by Chris Fujiwara. It, it came out in the 90s, but that is a wonderful book. It's a McFarland. I think it's, you can still get it. Nightfall. I'm looking it up right now. Yeah, it's still available. Another book to add to the bookshelf. <laughs> yeah, I love. I just love movie books. I, but Elizabeth Russell, that tall, statuous, cat-looking woman, I think Alan Abrams says she looks like a cat. Mm-hmm. She was in more of the movie uh, than most of all the Bellum flicks. Uh, she was in Bedlam, Curse of Cat People, The Seventh Victim, A Date with the Falcon, which is the Turner movie. She's in quite, maybe not the most, but quite a few. And of course, cat people. She was in Monolith Monsters, which I think was a Universal International flick. Right, and I was going to say she dipped into Universal with Weird Woman, which is my favorite Inner Sanctum film. Oh, she was in that too. Huh? Yeah. So she really did the genre movies, huh? Yeah, I mean, it looks like it. I mean, I suppose you take what you can get work-wise, but I mean, she did that. She was in The Corpse Vanishes. So, I mean, she did some of the lower budget stuff, which is great. I mean. She's got a, a look to her, and, and now every time I see her, I think, yeah, she looks like a cat, but still. I think it'd be a, a brilliant drinking game, and if not, it can just be a fun game to play with kids. But it would be, count how many cat images or cat references are in this film. I counted them twice. <laughs> and I don't know if you did this, but do you have any idea how many separate cat manifestations in sound an image or in this film. You know, I didn't think to keep track because after a few minutes of, of watching the movie, you're like, okay, they're really, you know, making sure we know this movie is called Cat People because there are so many images. How many did you get? I counted 31. Okay. Including a couple cat calls. But these are unique, separate images. You see a lot of the images that are duplicated. For instance, the, the cat that's speared by the king King John statue. Mm-hmm. We see that repeatedly. And we see that motif early on with the sketch that Irene had, had drawn, that image where she's essentially foreseeing her own death. We see that over and over. There's there's shadows. There's a projection of a, of a chair where you see two ears, the, the knobs on the chair, the ears of the cat. There are shadow, shadow kits. Early on, when the hurdy gurdy music's playing with the guy cranking that little organ, hurdy gurdy, which is another one of my favorite shots in the movie, by the way. It's a 
can. It's the, you know, it's very dynamic. Mm-hmm. The camera's Ollie's, moving. There's action in the foreground and the background. It's just a great shot. Yeah, Ollie's grabbing like a hot dog or something, and he gets it from the soul food stand that's got African animals. There's a lion on that. No one sees it. You see it. There's a carving of a boat. The masthead is a cat. Uh, the cat's on the table. Cat's in the painting. When they go to the Flecker Museum, that's in New York, by the way. That museum's still around. You can actually oh, okay. go to Facebook and see some of those artifacts. But that museum, there's a tall, it's a jackal. Anubis is a statue. It's not, it's a jackal. It's not a cat, but you see the ears. Right. So this, these motifs of animals, you know, you see that so much in this, uh, in the collaboration. And I count as many as 60 separate with the repetition of images. I counted 60, I think four. And it's probably more. It's more, probably more like a hundred. <laughs> separate wow. images of cats. Yeah. There's nothing subliminal there. I mean, there's images of cats. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot that are, I mean, the stuff like with the chair and things like that, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure it was intentional, you know, to, to put something like in there. But yeah, I did notice the Anubis and, you know, of course they keep going back to that little statue and then there's that, is it a dream sequence? The, the bit with the animated cats moving around and I mean, you see that too. So some of the stuff is pretty obvious, but that's really interesting. I, I would like to go back and maybe just kind of listen for some of the cat stuff, cat sounds. Yeah. Because I think that those are the things that kind of work on the subliminal level is, is some more of the the sound and the audio. And I mean, for a movie from nineteen the nineteen forties, what forty two, to be that sophisticated with the sound design, yeah. I mean, it's it's a yeah. genius film. Yeah, well, no doubt about it. I, so you know, you look at the people that were involved. I mean, you've got a a terrific cinematographer, Musaraka, and he's also you know, out of the Past is one of his films. I'm pretty certain that he did the uh, I Walk With a Zombie, excuse me. It, plus, there's there were a bunch of other movies. There's a movie that just came out, finally released, called The Whip Hand. And it's about communist paranoia there in, during the McCarthy era. It's fantastic. And the lighting, it's, Nick Musaraka did all the lighting on that. Tanura talked at length about the importance of uh, composition, lighting, if this movie was put in the hands of a lesser artist or team, it falls flat. You know, I, I, I'm convinced that it was the perfect gelling of talent. There's movies that are just bad, like I Saved Hitler's Brain. It's an awful movie. But it, it's a level above horrible because of the Stanley Cortez beautiful black and white photography and mm-hmm. high contrast, deep focus photography. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. So I really look at you know, the composition of a film, I think that a lot of times will elevate a movie from disaster. You know, some films are just bad, but boy, when you get this kind of talent, uh, you know, it really totally elevates it to a new level. You use the word gelling, and that that's really what's happened here, is you've got the cinematography, you've got the sound design, you've got the performances, the story, uh, the direction, obviously. Everything kind of gels and makes this just... I don't want to talk in hyperbole, but I mean, it's this perfect mix. And you always hear films are a collaborative art. And in something like this, when you've got so many collaborators that are at the top of their game or, or getting to the top of their game, you can't help but be impressed with the overall image. And 
you know, with your photography, I guess I'll say background, uh, your photography background. I mean, you certainly respond to something like this. I don't have the strong photography background that you do or some other people do, but I respond to it. So it, it's not too highbrow per se, but it is more mature, I think, than some of the other films of the of its era. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Totally. And it really is conveyed nicely in this new 2K print, the Blu-ray high def. If you look at some of the, particularly the close-up shots of Irina, real sharp up front, mm-hmm. and then you see in the background there's almost a creamy background. That's a that's a concept photographer's called bokeh. It's a Japanese term, and it's just kind of the swirly background, creamy look background. Well, what they do is they shoot wide open to keep that shallow depth of field. Then when they step the aperture down into like a little hole, a smaller hole, then you can do that deep focus. That's what you see in those early shots and later where you see all the detail in the background and with the lighting. And you particularly see it in the, the shop there with the, all the drafting tools on the wall. Mm-hmm. You can actually see out, out the window, you can see some buildings out the window. But there's this really, there's a couple really weird scenes that I can only guess are inside uh, jokes or something that's not privy to the audience. But there's okay. a cleaning woman smoking a cigarette, she's kind of scrubbing the floor around this turnstile. And she's got this curious mannerism where she's brushing the ashes off her chest. I was going to ask you about that. If that, if you knew or if that was mentioned in the commentary, if that's got a meaning or something. They don't. They're, in the commentary, make mentions that, but there were two distinct close-ups. They cut to another scene and then they go back to her doing that again. And I don't, I think that's Tenor's realism. I think that's why he threw that in there. But you see this, there's a, there's a human death with, uh, the waitress there in, uh, uh what's it called? Mary Land's, that little cafe. Right. They go in there and she's talking about chicken. Nobody wants chicken gumbo soup. I think that some of that is, uh, Bodine DeWitt added that, but that's without a doubt Tanur's fingerprint is adding all that human, that, that whole thing about the little banter about food and, Mm-hmm. I think later in the uh, the movie, they're discussing what to do with Irina and whether or not they're going to commit her. And the aristocrat, the psychiatrist, Judd, orders Roquefort. So he's eating Roquefort cheese on a cracker. And then I don't remember what the other orders are. It's like, so it's just like so much detail. It's fantastic. It does have a, a sense of real life to those scenes. And, and the pet shop, I really enjoyed the pet shop sequence as well. Just the way it was composed and where they chose to place the camera when they first walk in. You know, they could have just put the camera at the door and have them walk into the store and, and call it good, but they, they've hiked the camera up high enough to where you can see this is not just a set. I mean, it probably was, but it, it doesn't feel like a set because you can see so much because of where they've placed the camera and where yeah. they've placed all the, the animals and the actors in the scene. It's a great shot. Yeah, and the sound is most dynamic there to the point of being almost distracting there with the, uh, you know, back in the day, you can go in a pet store and buy a, a, a monkey. You can buy a spider monkey. Could you imagine that? <laughs> I, 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 yeah. If you ever look through the famous monsters of Filmland, those old vintage magazines, mm-hmm. it says in the back, it's like, buy a spider monkey. It's like $25. But I guess it was about $100 a ship. <laughs> but it's like I wonder how many kids like 
saved up their allowances their entire three summers to order a spider monkey to find out it's like a hundred something bucks a ship. I don't know. But yeah. And, uh, in many ways, though, it's a sad film. You know, you really, you do sympathize with, um, Irena's position. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she, is she frigid? Is she, is there something else going on? She fears this curse, you know, and then finally, you know, Judd gets through to her and he's got his own intentions, right? And he gets right. through to her and she, she makes a comment about, this is not a problem of the mind. My problem is the soul. And he's like, oh, you figured that out. But do you think it'd be an improvement if this movie had a transformation scene? You know, I don't know if it needs it for what it is. I mean, we have some little moments. You know, we have some little moments where you start to question, is she or isn't she? There's the one shot where she claws the sofa couch, right? Or the, the cushion on the couch. You know, her hand comes down to reveal that she's torn through the fabric, which, again, brilliant yeah. shot. You didn't have to exploit that moment. It just it happens, and then you move on. You know, and there are some things that happen with sound, um, the bit at the pool, I don't know if we really needed a full-on transformation scene. I almost wonder if it would have cheapened it. What do you think? Well, you know, that's the big question in Curse of the Demon. You know, the, in the Tenerife's film, in the beginning, we see the demon right up front. You know, the demon, man, this delivers, and I think it's a terrific mock-up. You know, one scene, it's a rod puppet. The other scene, you've got this terrific close-up. Mm-hmm. Well, Tenerife again, wanted you know exactly how he would have shot it. He wanted this basically subliminal, and that film would have been like his Holden, right, the paranormal investigator. He's like, what's what's going on? What am I involved with here? You know, you follow on the script, it's kind of like it's all suggestive. But in that movie, boom, right up front, you know, it's like this demon's for real. I, I could see how cat people could have had studio meddling in a different era where they would screw it up. But Luton had, you know, a lot of control in these films. And they're like, as long as they were successful, they kind of let him go. But I guess there was some censorship meddling with, um, the, you know, whether a kiss is too long, that kind of thing. But okay. my girlfriend was a little bit worried about cat people because, it, you know, a bird dies. She's big time pro animal, which is great. But there's some scenes in there that kind of with the panther, uh, by the way, the Panther's real name is Lightning, and Val Luton and Turner really exploited that animal in a few different films. Leopard Man. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't think it's the animal that you see in Christmas Demon later, but they had a precursor Humane Society on set to make sure no animals were harmed. Oh, that good. was a British requirement. But no, I think if you do one, okay, you, it would be a lap dissolve to have her change. Right. And then how do you yeah, so how do you do the physiological, morphological change into a cat? You don't need to go there. Less is better. Mm-hmm. And that was certainly Tenor's adage. Yeah, it would have to be, like you said, a lap dissolve like you saw in The Wolfman, which, you know, is, is part of The Wolfman's legacy. You use that sequence as iconic. But I think for something like this, when it's got a more... Gosh, and I, and I don't want to sound hipsterish, and I don't want to sound like I'm talking bad about the Universal, because you know we we love them. But this movie does have that more mature, grown-up vibe, and I think by having that lap dissolve, it would it would kind of dumb it down a little bit. They relied on this very subtle optical effect, mm-hmm. you know, where they do the kind of the little star, the glint in the eye. That shot was great, that, by the way. That that shot yeah. was. Mm. 
yeah, it's, I think it's all you need. I, there's some changes in the filter where her face darkens up. I suspected she was wearing a color tinged makeup and they changed the filter and that's where you got that darkening of the face. And then she just, pan, not pan, but she kind of just slides out of the field of view. <laughs> I was like, you know, just blown away when I first saw that. I'm like, oh, okay. Then, it, of course, at the end, it delivers, and there's some action there. But yep. uh, when I watched with Kelly here, she she said to me, she caught a flaw. And I, I never, I've probably seen this film 25, 30 times. I never recognized this. When Judd gets the key and he's back in the apartment at the end and he's going to get to know Irena, there's a scene where they're trying to get a hold of Judd and they call him up and he, they call him at the apartment. I, I always thought that was a little bit of liberty in the script there. It's like, how would they know that he, you know, he's sneaking around. How would they know that he's back in the apartment? I always mm-hmm. thought that was, a, if they're, if you're going to scrutinize a problem, but they had to set it up some way that they get back to him. About, it's a nearly perfect movie. And then I'm being nitpicky on that scene, but uh, but I know some people, they, you know, my father always thought, he's like, let's put on uh, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, which, you know, boom, it's action nonstop. Mm-hmm. And then he always thought, yeah, people, he's like, this is kind of slow. Which, that's the point of the movie, yeah. Right. Is it cliche to say it's a slow burn? But, I mean, it is a slower movie. But, you know, I'm glad it is because it gives you a chance to savor everything that's going on on screen. I mean, I'm going to go back to the lights and the darks and the shadows. If it was an action movie, I don't think we'd get to enjoy all of that. That pool scene would have been completely different. Yeah, no uh, doubt about it. Tanar was interviewed there, and he, uh, I thought it was well done. The guy interviewing him basically said, what is cinema to you? He didn't bat an eye, and he said, cinema is escapism. He said, Walt Disney really understood that. It's, it's about the magic. That's why we go. There is some reflection of the times, you know, back in the 40s, you know, you hit, you know, war era. People wanted to get away from, you know, the daily terrors. You know, we're seeing right, like right now, not to make a political statement here, but right now things are, there's a lot of tension going on. And mm-hmm. I look at these movies to this day or escape. That's why I watch them to be entertaining to escape. Well, what's the what's the point of a story? You know, it's to be entertained. It's fine to find messages in these things. You know, and that's fine. And you, but watch the movies to be entertained. If they make you smile or laugh or think or whatever, then great. But you know, that's what it was. That's what it is. So, in the pantheon of horror film, where do you rank this film? I mean, where do you where do you see it? I don't think it would be as much as an easy sell as like the Universal movies when you're trying to get somebody to watch a monster movie or a horror movie. Where do I rank it? I mean, I'd put it pretty pretty high up there. I think it hmm, – man, that's a tough call. Because <laughs> I love my Universals and I love my Hammers and I love my AIPs and I love my Toho's. Um, man, that's tough. I'd put it pretty high up there though. Yeah. Uh, what about you? Where would you put it? Well – there's something about black and white films that mm-hmm. evokes interest in me. And I, that might be, and I, you know, I like the gaudy Eastman color. Uh, you know, some of the Herschel Ward Lewis movies are totally different type of genre, but I like those bright, fake looking colors, a la Hammer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you'd be surprised, uh, the Hammer films, there's only one that I, 
would maybe put my top 10 and that's the obvious uh, horror Dracula or Dracula. Mm-hmm. I, I would have that in my top 10. I really like Bride to Dracula. Some people don't like it as well. I, Ron Adams, if you talk to him, he's like loves that movie. But oh, I love it too. I'm a big the, fan. Oh, I, I love it. But he's not a big fan of the mummy, the Karloff mummy, which I would have in my top 10. I would pick the curse of the demons in my top 10. Mm-hmm. Uh, a Turner film. That, that's up there. That's one of my absolute favorite films. Catwoman, I would probably put actually top 25. Leopard Man wouldn't be up that high because it's not, it's not that good a film, but it's worth seeing. I would have, I walk with the zombies probably top 50 for me, but it, it's invariably, man, it's the mummy is right up there. Bride of Frankenstein which some people can build a strong argument, man, that that's not really hard, but I'll throw that in there. I'm adamant that King Kong doesn't belong but top 10 as a horror film because to me it's just adventure. I, I will never call that, even though Kong chews up some natives, I don't <laughs> see that as a horror film. Oh, by the way, I loved your Island of Lost Souls commentary. That was fantastic on your mm, podcast. That, that's really good. That's a good film, too. That's in my top 10. Probably the Wolfman, Cheney, the Wolfman, I think is one of the li- most literal films with probably arguably the best cast ever in a horror film. I mean, Claude Rains is a top-notch actor. Mm-hmm. That's up there. But the Val Luton films certainly deserve, I-, I think anybody that is exploring horror films for the first time, they need to watch these, and I would watch them in order. The Karloff films, Probably, I think the best film of the bunch is probably the Karloff, the uh, Burke and Hare film. Body Snatcher? The, the Body Snatcher is probably the best film, the Robert Wise film. is probably the best of all of them, I think, from just a compositional, just a sound movie. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that Henry Danielle is fantastic in that movie. But you got to see it. And I, I would imagine your crowd here now is a mix of a lot of old farts like me, but are you getting more and more younger people interested or <laughs> oh man i i wouldn't i wouldn't call you an old fart barry come on now at least not while you're on the phone with me um <laughs> no you know i feel like at least with with the monster kid radio listening audience i know we have you know some younger people than me i've got people my age i've got some older people listening yeah i don't know if i had to put together like a top 10 or top 25 list of, of monster or horror. Well, okay. You said King Kong, you wouldn't consider a horror movie. And I, I agie with you. And I think that's why I always use the, the label monster movie instead when I talk about yeah. these movies. Um, oh, yeah. because King Kong's a monster movie, but it, it's more of an, you know, adventure type story just happens to have a big old monster in it. You know, some of the later Godzilla movies aren't really horrific, but they, they still have monsters, you know. Uh, if I had to put together a list of like top 10 horror movies or genre films like this, yeah, I could see cat people being in my top 25, although, you know, I haven't updated my flick chart website in forever, so I don't know yeah. what movies are, are where, but yeah, I could put this up there. It's probably one of my favorite criterions. I can say that for sure. Oh, yeah. The other film that was, uh, that came out, uh, the companion piece for Kong is the, uh, most dangerous game is a, just a beautiful, I'm getting on tangents here, but beautiful pressing. That's another one. I think Kino might have put it up too. Just wonderful print. I've got a version uh, of that here. One. Yeah, Pardon? that's a great film. I've got a version of that here too, and it's fantastic. 
the other Hammer movie I absolutely adore is the uh, Plague of the Zombies. That's a lesser one for me. I, I, I like it because it's unusual. It may be one of the few that Hammer ever touched upon zombies. Mm-hmm. And that's the Caribbean zombie, right? The more of a, you know, the zombie, the, the, what do you call it, the West Indies zombie. You know, it was right before Romero got in the game with the zombie stuff. And, and really my love for that, I think kind of carried over from my zombie days, you know, and, and I'm not really a big zombie movie guy anymore. I mean, I still mm-hmm. like the classic zombie stuff, but like the modern zombie stuff, I just not really into these days. And I think that's where my, my love for Plague of the Zombies came more from was because it was such a unique take. It was a full color zombie, but they weren't quite Romero-esque. It's still good. I still enjoy it. It's not in my top five Hammer film list or anything like that anymore, but I mean, I still like it. I just dread the, I guess, what I heard was Creature from the Black Lagoon got <sighs> put on hold again. And the, they're talking about Scarlett Johansson being the, you know, the heroine role. And I'm like, leave it alone, man. It just disturbs me. I, I see exactly what the studios would do with that film. And <sighs> it, they, would, they would just kill it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it can't be a success. Uh, maybe from I don't a financial know. point. I, you know, with the Universal remakes and, and wanting to launch this monster Marvel movie verse kind of thing, I. It's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, well, the Tom Cruise mummy is probably in post production at this point. Uh, you know, they talked about uh, having Russell Crowe come in as Mr. Hyde and then is it, uh, Javier Bardem as Frankenstein? Yeah. So I don't know. Um, I mean, I'm going to watch them. I'm going to give them a shot. But my my hopes aren't high, and I've got the originals on DVD, so or Blu-ray. So I'm <laughs> if 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 they're not that great, I have the originals to go back to, and even if they are great, I still have the originals to go back to. But I'm not back. hopeful about the creature one. I'm not hopeful about that because you know they're going to CG it up, and I think part of the beauty of Creature from the Black Lagoon is that it's a real presence, and. That suit design is beautiful to me. I mean, that's my favorite film, period. And I just can't imagine that suit being re-envisioned, that, that creature being redesigned. I just, I'm not looking forward to what it's going to look like. Did you ever meet uh, Ben Chapman at all, or was that before uh, he passed, I, before you I have there? not met Ben Chapman, unfortunately. I've, I've met Browning a couple of times, and I've met Julie Adams. <sighs> A few times. Um, and she's a sweetheart. God, I love her so much. But uh, I never got a chance to meet Ben Chapman, unfortunately. I hear he was a great guy. Yeah, he was um, kind of unknown for a while. And I don't know if somebody discovered him. It's probably Tom Weaver, one of those guys, discovered him. And I think he was an insurance agent living in Hawaii. And I talked to him a few times at Ron's show. And what a nice man. But, you know, Rico Browning directed those underwater scenes in Thunderball, and he was actually a pioneer in some of the underwater photography. Uh, he might have been associated with Sea Hunt, the Lloyd Bridges show, but he's an interesting guy. If you Invariably, everybody blows him up about talking about the creature, but if you get him talking about, you know, underwater photography and his contributions to cinema, under, you know, actual underwater photography, you know, he really gets into it. I think he, like anybody, gets tired of talking about the same thing. You know, I kind of, like, take it from a different point of view as people. Like, I met Frank Gorshin a long time ago, and everyone's asking about the Riddler, and I was asking him about 
the invasion of the saucer, man. Hey, there you go. <laughs> he's like, he was like, you've seen this? And I'm like, yeah. It's like one of my favorite movies. There yep. you go. You know, low budget masterpiece, I think. Yeah, I, I tried to do that too. When I first met Rico Browning, of course I wanted to talk about Creature, but I didn't want to be just another Creature guy, you know? So, you know, I asked him about directing John Agar and Mr. No Legs, and he looked at me like, huh? Why are you asking me about this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think some of those uh, celebs, they're just stunned about the knowledge that this community has, you know, mm-hmm. just digesting all this old stuff. I'm, you know what? I'm starved to find something new, man. I, I'm exploring Japanese genre, South American, Argentinian films, because I've seen every now and then there's something that I'm like, whoa, how did I miss this? But I've seen so much that I'm really, you know, I'm really rooting around here, particularly Japanese films. Mm-hmm. And there's some good ones out there. I mean, Kyle and the gang doing the, the Kaiju Cast podcast has introduced me to so many uh, Japanese Oh, kaiju yeah. films those, and you know they dip into some of the monster terrific. stuff too it's good stuff yeah, you those, talked about going to g-fest man i want to go to g-fest so bad so this year i, I met uh forgive me for not remembering but uh the original ultraman i met him mm. he was there it, it's a you know it's narrow bandwidth show man it's people that are really in there they're kaiju die kaiju and it, it's kind of it's a little bit different uh, it's family oriented which is really good Mm-hmm. That hotel, man, it's like trying to find a place to eat drove me crazy. Uh, <laughs> it's not really laid out. There's like one or two restaurants and there's a mall across the street. Uh, but it's a great show. They, what they do is they show the movies, uh, in a little theater that's a few mile drive outside of the theater. Mm-hmm. And they usually do that Thursday night. So you really need to, you know, go a little bit early to see those films. But man, if you're into collecting monster vinyl, you better start saving up now, man. <laughs> I've heard that. that. Bring an extra suitcase is what I've been told. That stuff, you'll go broke. And I do collect some of it. But I, I'm a simple guy here that works like most people. And I love buying that stuff. But So now I'm very selective on what films. Criterion, if they keep pressing these Val Luton films, I'll buy every one of them. Yeah, every one of them. I love the Criterion releases, but I got to tell you, man, they, they ain't cheap. I mean, you get what you pay for. I mean, I certainly think cat people's worth full price for Criterion, but they ain't cheap. So you got to watch for that, that, you know, biannual or, or twice a year, whatever it is. So they do it like every other year, every other six months, the, uh, the sale, the Criterion Blu-ray sale. Oh, oh, oh yeah. That, yeah. Like in November, they whack them 50%. Yeah. So you got to watch for that. Yeah. And sometimes I get tempted and I'm like, cat people, I'm getting that one now. Well, <laughs> and you know, it's a gamble because sometimes they sell out and they go out of print. And by the time that sale comes around, if you haven't gotten it already and it's out of print, you're out of luck. So yeah, exactly, exactly. I think we hit this pretty good. I, you know, this is fun. I like to do these you know, a few, few of these a year. I haven't done one since a while ago. Um, so you know, Don, depending on how this turns out, if you want to do another one, we can. I would love to have you back on, man. Now, in the meantime. I'm going to keep up with you. I mean, we're friends on Facebook. But listeners yeah. can check out your blog, monsterminions.wordpress.com. Um, yeah. You talk about, well, monster stuff. So go check that out. Uh, you know, I'm looking at it right now, and I'm seeing, you know, pictures of Bela Lugosi. I'm seeing pictures of Godzilla. You know, this is, yeah. you know, this is a site you need to check out, people. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. Thanks for the, thanks for the plug. I, uh, I might do a review of this movie. 
it's just a matter of like anything I got to dive into it again. I've been posting a lot of images, you know, it's kind of goes hand in hand with my photography blog. Mm-hmm. So you'll see a lot of pictures of models and that kind of thing. Not like, not like Cheryl Ladd models, but like models of plastic <laughs> Godzillas. <laughs> Where are your photography blogs? If people want to check it out, how do they find them? There's one, uh, an image miscellanea. And then I have another one, non-native lenses. I like to play around with old camera lenses and actually adapt them to modern digital uh, photography with modern sensors. So there's something about old glass, old Pentax, Takamar lenses, Leica lenses on modern digital. I, I like experimenting with old and new. And uh, it's really cool. And there's a subculture, by the way, on that, that people really are looking for that certain type of glass that really pops an image. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I got obsessed with it. And it's um, that is the hobby that's consuming me. How do people find that one? I found imagemiscellanea.wordpress.com. What's the other, the non-native lenses you said? How do people find that one? Yeah, that's a WordPress too. Oh, okay. I think if you just Google non-native lenses, that means a lens is not specifically adapted for a camera. So if you say you have a Nikon lens that has a specific mount for a Nikon camera, what people have done here, and there's all these different adapters that some of them are custom, some are commercially bought, that allow you to put an old lens on a new camera. Okay. And it's a it's a, actually a, a cost savings because a lot of that old glass is far superior than the junk you buy now. And wow. I like it because it, there's an experimental aspect to it that I like tinkering, you know, trying different things. But I appreciate the plug on uh, on those blogs. Are these your photos on nonnativelenses.wordpress.com? Yeah, that's all. That's all my work, and if that's what you want to call it, and. Wow, you know, this, I, is, um, this is nice work, man. Yeah, th- thank you. So, like, I got into macro photography, you know, close-up uh-huh. photos of uh, insects, that kind of thing. And I kind of like the grotesqueness of nature. So <laughs> I kind of got into that. But now my, my thing here is uh, black and white film. I'm going broke. I haven't film developed. I'm thinking about actually putting up, doing a lab. Uh, oh, wow. Doing a film lab. Because I shoot a lot of black and white film. So, and what I typically do, I say the lens, the camera, and the film stock. You know, it's kind of weird. I got up my own legacy with work. I'm an environmental consultant. I've got a degree in biology, degree in, bot- in geology, with mm-hmm. a focus on botany. And what I do is I consult in the environmental industry and ways to clean up environmental sites of contamination, characterize and clean up. So I got my own kind of a work legacy where I'm pretty active in the academic uh, realm of that discipline. But that's not fun, man. The, the King Kong versus Godzilla, that's fun. <laughs> <laughs> okay, website roll call. Monsterminions.wordpress.com is where Barry talks about monster stuff. And then his two photography sites, imagemiscellanea.wordpress.com and nonnativelenses.wordpress.com. I'll make sure that there are links to these in the show notes. We're going to have Barry back. I want to talk about some more Val Luton films, and it sounds like he's the man to guide us through the Val Luton Ovoir, the, the, the catalog. You know what I mean. Barry, thanks for being part of the show.
this South Seas paradise, where sensuous maidens offer themselves in ritual sacrifice to his brute embrace. Godzilla has a brain about this size. He is sheer brute force. While Kong is a thinking animal. His brain is considerably larger. About ten times the size of this gorilla's skull. Being instinctive rivals, there's no doubt that they will attempt to destroy one another. King Kong versus Godzilla, heading for their colossal collision. Shattering every obstacle that stands between them in the most fantastic rampage of annihilation ever recorded on film. See King Kong stamp Tokyo into the ground, holding a beautiful girl in his grasp. See Godzilla destroy an entire army. See King Kong trapped by the blazing barrier of a billion volts. But nothing, nobody can stop the great showdown when King Kong and Godzilla meet to fight for survival of the fittest. It's 1966. The space race is on. The Cold War is heating up. And giant monsters are destroying Japan. Dai Kaiju Attack. The serialized giant monster story. Presented free every week on DaikaijuAttack.com and SDSullivan.com. Become a member of the Daikaiju Attack group on Facebook. Join the action today. Death. Eternal punishment. For anyone who opens this casket. mummy. Is it dead or alive? Human or inhuman? You'll know. You'll see. You'll feel the awful, creeping, crawling terror that stands your hair on end and brings a scream to your lips. (coughs) There's nothing on earth like the mummy. You will not remember what I show you now, and yet I shall awaken memories of love and crime and death. Now I know his horrible plan. He is going to kill her and make her a living mummy like himself. said it at the top of the show. I'm going to say it again. October is the most wonderful time of the year. I cannot believe it's already here. I feel like you kind of snuck up on us a little bit, but you know what? It doesn't mean I'm not prepared. I am prepared. I've been looking forward to some of these things that are happening this month all year 
long. All right. So first and foremost, next weekend at the Hollywood Theater in Portland, Oregon, the 7th, 8th, and 9th of October, the HP Lovecraft Film Festival, the 2016 edition. I've been going to this thing since 2002. Yeah, I've seen it change directors. I've seen it grow and become a massive event. I love it so much. I wouldn't miss it for the world. And I'm lucky in that I get to be a guest and a panelist again this year. So I'm going to be a guest. Uh, you can find out about that over at hpfilmfestival.com. I'm very excited about the one panel I'm going to be on. The panel is called Lovecraft in Black and White or Lovecraft in Black and White Film. I'm moderating this panel, and I'm just going to read to you the description that I submitted to the festival directors. Join the panelists as they discuss a number of classic black and white horror and science fiction films and the Lovecraftian elements and or influence that can be found in them. If you like movies like It, The Terror from Beyond Space, Creature from the Black Lagoon, or The Magnetic Monster, this is the panel for you. I'm moderating the panel. Chris McMillan is going to be on the panel with me, along with Sean Branny and Kenneth Height. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm thinking I'll probably get away with recording it for a future episode of Monster Kid Radio. So that is something that I'm thrilled to share with you guys and gals. I love the panels. I love seeing the short movies. I love the vendors. Most importantly, I love just hanging out with my fellow Lovecraftian lurker friends. And Shelby Denham, the person who does the incredible artwork for Monster Kid Radio, those monster portraits, that's all her. She's going to be a guest there as well. So I'm looking forward to connecting with her at the show, too. In previous years, they've tried to bring in like a, a classic movie of some sort in the Lovecraftian vein. This year, they're bringing in a movie called The Asphyx. Now, it's slightly outside of the Monster Kid Radio wheelhouse. It's from 1972, but it's got that kind of sort of hammer gothic vibe. And I've long said a hammer film is always welcome here on Monster Kid Radio. And I'm going to extend that to films that have that hammer vibe. So I'll probably talk a little bit about the ass fix on an upcoming episode. You know, I am going to be introducing the film. So maybe I'll record the introduction the way that I do and share that on a future episode as well. So that's coming up just this weekend at the end of the month. That's when things are really going to kick off for me here in the Portland, Oregon area. If you're here in the Portland, Oregon area, the Northwest Film Center in downtown Portland. October 30th, 7 p.m., Theater of Blood. Vincent Price, come on. You cannot miss Vincent Price. During the Halloween season, it's just, mm. This is the sound of a human heartbeat. But this heartbeat is different because this heart is beating outside the body. Vincent Price saw to that. Vincent Price has long been a master of mayhem. But in Theater of Blood... He outdoes himself at doing people in Theater of Blood from United Artists, rated R, under 17, not admitted without a parent. So that's happening. There's a Monster Kid Radio Crash event page set up over on Facebook. So if you're a Facebook user, look that up. I hope to see you there. I'll have my recorder, so we'll record there at the show as well. Now, a crash for new listeners or listeners who haven't heard us talk about that here in a little bit. It's an informal gathering. You know, we don't actually crash, quote unquote, the theater and cause any trouble or anything. We just get together and go see the movie as a group and then maybe talk about it before and or afterwards. And I'll have the recorder, so hopefully we can put something on the show. So that's happening. The day before, though, oh, man, Scarathon 2016 at the Joy Cinema. At least five movies being shown all day long. I can confirm three titles. 
The Evil Dead from 1981. Yeah, a little outside of the Monster Kid Radio wheelhouse. But, you know, I was talking about regional filmmaking earlier in this episode. That movie, The Evil Dead, has that regional filmmaking vibe. You know what I mean? It's from 1981, so the distribution system was a little different. Technology is a little different. But it has that small town, uh, very region-specific type filmmaking feel. Anyway, The Evil Dead is going to be playing Creature from the Black Lagoon, which you all know is my personal favorite. And then... One of my absolute favorite kaiju films, King Kong versus Godzilla. Yeah. I'm going to see that on the big screen at the Joy Cinema as well. I know that the Joy Cinema's Jeff Martin is trying to bring in a couple of other movies as well. And uh, if he's able to pull off what he's thinking about doing, well, it's going to be a fun time. And not just because I'm going to be there the entire day hosting the show. This is something that I've been wanting to do, and I finally got together with Jeff last week at the Joy and told him what I had in mind. Told him that if there's room and he's interested, I'd be happy to MC the entire event. His eyes got wide. He went and he's like, yeah, let's do it. So you know what? I'm stoked. I'm going to be introducing movies, talking to the crowd. I'm going to set up a table. I'm going to have the Monster Kid Radio banner, probably do a little bit of recording. It's going to be a lot of fun. So if you're in the Tigard, Oregon area... I'd love to see you. Even if for just one or two of the movies, I would love to meet you, and I'd love to watch a monster movie with you during the month of October. Now, there's a couple of other things happening, I'm sure, but these are the three big formal things happening for me in October right now. In the middle of the month, I'm actually going out of town for a few days, so I can't really talk about what's happening in Portland during then because I, I haven't looked because I'm going to be somewhere else. And to be clear, I'm looking forward to being out of town for a few days. I can use a break in the things that I'm doing and the people I'm hanging with. It's, it's going to be a lot of fun. That brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Once again, thank you guys and gals for listening. You know, I don't think I say it enough, but thank you. Without you, you know, the show is just me sitting here with no pants on, talking about monster movies to my computer or my wife or my cats. So having you guys and gals along for the ride, I mean, that, that means a lot. So thanks a lot. MonsterKidRadio.net is where you're going to find everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio between episodes. We've got contact information here. I mentioned our email address, MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com. And we have a voicemail line at 503-479-5657. That's 503-479-5MKR. And listeners, I would love to ask you to call in and let us know what you're doing to celebrate Halloween. What are you doing this month special? I assume it's Monster Kids. You probably do things monster movie related all year round. But this month, I mean, this is the biggie for us. What are you doing this month to celebrate October, fall, Halloween, National Taco Day, which was really, whatever it is you do to celebrate October, I'd love to hear about it and I'd love to share it with the listeners. So please call that in. We also have links to every bit of music that appears here on the show so you can go and check out and support those bands. And I try to make sure that I announce what's coming up on a future episode of Monster Kid Radio here as well. Next week, I'll spoil it for you as well. And I'll spoil it for you next week. Monster Kid Radio original. One of the first guys that I ever recorded with for Monster Kid Radio. He actually appeared in episode number one. Chris McMillan is going to be on the show next week. And we're going to be talking about a movie from the 1930s. It's called Mystery of the Wax Museum. Looking forward to that. It's going to be a treat. I know it's going to be a treat because I actually already recorded that with Chris a couple of weeks ago. So it's just been kind of sitting in the virtual hopper ready to go out on the feed. So that'll be happening next week. Come back for that. You know, also on our website, I kind of glossed over this. We have our Patreon page. Thank you, all of our patrons to help support the show. 
Really appreciate you doing that. And we have links to our Facebook group and our Facebook page. Now, if you're a Facebook user, we'd like to ask you to well, give us a like. And we'd love to have you join us in the conversations that are happening over in the Facebook group. And, you know, just um, about the Facebook group, I want to give a special shout out to Andy. Andy posted something in the Facebook group uh, just the other day, and it really kind of hit me uh, in a very positive way. I want to thank you so much for everything that you've said about what I'm doing here. I try real hard to do everything that you you know what listeners go to the Facebook group, check out what Andy had to say. Um, Andy, thank you. It means a lot. It really does. Until next time, remember that all original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Catfight. That belongs to the band The Beyonders. They're based out of Houston, Texas. You can find them on Facebook or on Bandcamp at thebeyondershtx.bandcamp.com. Check them out. Pick up the album. It's five bucks. Let them know that you heard about them here on Monster Kid Radio. I'll talk to you, everybody, next week if I survive the Lovecraft Film Festival. Okay, I'll survive it because you, know, you got to come back to talk about Mystery of the Wax Museum with Chris McMillan. I'm out of here. Ciao. Ciao.